Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how are we doing today? I'm doing very well, Andrew. How are you doing? Doing great. We hope everyone is doing great as well. You are a premium subscriber, and for that, we really appreciate it. If you have not downloaded the app yet, make sure you go to focuscompounding.com slash, oh, I'm sorry, well, you already signed up, so you've done that. Go to the iOS uh, store or Android store, type in Focus Compounding. You take your password and email information that you signed up for, and you punch it in there. And then you will get access to the podcast backlog and whatever premium content we do. So, Jeff, how was your week last week? Uh, Any, did you uh, Have you looked at anything new that stuck out to you or that you thought was interesting or anything like that? There was a lot of volatility in the market. Which we were yeah. kind of able to take advantage of, I guess, for the fund. We were built a position in a week, basically, which was okay. kind of a nice change. So, yeah, I guess volume and stuff benefits us. Yeah. A lot of things, though, were bigger and tech and things that don't matter that much to us, right? That yeah. yeah. A lot of the companies that we own, they just kind of didn't really move. Yeah, they didn't move from the way up or the way down as much as those things. Yeah. Does that make you feel good when that happens? It's a double-edged sword. You like yeah. it when the market goes down and your stocks go down, but then it sucks when the market goes up and your stocks are just kind of doing their own thing. Yeah. I mean, as you saw um, with the COVID uh, declines in like March uh, or so, um, everything falls when that happens, like a true yeah. panic, everything falls. Well, but, we may have another troop. This is Sunday that we're recording okay. this. We'll see where the futures open up. All right. But France is closing down, okay. in, you know, parts of the UK mm-hmm. closing down as well. Trump tweeted today that the US is not closing down. But as right. you said, that's kind of whatever, irrelevant. <laughs> we'll see what happens when the future oh, is open. It's, ir- it's irrelevant what he said. Yes. Yeah. I just meant that the actual decisions made Correct. on a state level, really local level in the US. Um, now, in March, he did basically shut everything down by putting out guidelines that then most states and stuff were willing to follow. So the federal government did put out guidelines. That's why everyone followed them or a lot of states followed them. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can certainly do that again. I mean, you could put a lot of pressure, I guess, on s- local people, whoever the president is, can do that. Uh, but yeah, the decision is not as centralized as in other countries. Correct. We um, have the election coming up on Tuesday as well. Okay. So that's going to be interesting to follow uh-huh do you have any predictions for that uh i don't have predictions for that no yeah that's that's good that you don't have a prediction <laughs> for that so we actually have some questions that came through from a premium subscribers okay. so for everybody listening email me focus compounding at gmail.com whatever question you have we will answer them throughout the show on this podcast so the first question comes from Clark, and he says, what are Jeff and Andrew's top three books in no order? Hmm. Top three investing books? Correct. Nope. Three books. <laughs> I mean, whatever you want. We can, you can make it investing I'll and non-investing. Be, uh, three investment books. Um, let's see. Uh, you can be a stock market genius. Um... The snowball uh, in the chapters that start with the chapter strike one and then till much, you know, later in it, but for about a third of the snowball. Um, And (laughs) 
And, um, hmm. The last one, yeah, the last one would be hard. Um, I think maybe um, there's always something to do. Peter Kundle? Yeah. That might be the three I would kind of suggest, yeah. I'm surprised that that's a top three book. What did you like about it? It is. Uh, I think it's a good book for people to read and the kind of case studies and stuff in it. There's lots of other it's books a great book. that I could think of. Like I was thinking Phil Fisher um, and Peter Lynch and uh, I'm a big fan of the Ben Graham books, uh, but I'm not really going to recommend like security analysis to someone or something like that. So I would say those are the three. They kind of give you a feel for the sort of different approaches that you could have, I guess. I, I Then you like, I don't know if they have enough specifics in them, but it gives you a real, the Peter Kundle book does give you a real feel for like how to go about finding, uh, like what that is, what bargains were like that were, and his attitude to finding them and all that sort of thing. Um, there's some other people that are really interesting, but there's not been a great book written about them. So like I've mentioned Templeton, but there's not a great book about them. Um, I think the Davis dynasty books really interesting the first third of it or whatever. Um, but it's not like there's a lot of information um, to give us a real detailed record of his, his um, investing career and stuff. So sometimes the subject is really good. And then the book, it, there's not yet a book about them. That's that has all the information that you would need. Year three. Mine would be stock market genius. Okay. Um, hmm. This is about investing. I mean, snowball or it'd be yeah. stock market genius, snowball, and then probably one of the Peter Lynch books. Okay. I really enjoy those books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say probably that. I really like case study books though as well. There's just so many out there, but probably stock market genius. I think that's one of the best investing books ever written. And the funny thing is, is Greenblatt doesn't even invest like that anymore. Yeah. But I really like the way he thinks well, about it. Well, doesn't really invest like the part of the snowball that I'm recommending. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, what's fascinating. Somebody was talking about this earlier and I don't, I mean, you would know the answer to this. Did Ben Graham always change like his formulas and stuff like that, like the, his way of investing every time a new security analysis came out. There's a lot of people talk yes. about that. And then and then they also say, I think like towards the end of his life, he basically said he he would not invest like any way that he talked about in those books. I mean, he really made a lot of his money from Geico, correct? And he was successful with his funds and stuff like that. But Geico was a very... Was personally, it a very concentrated? Money, personally, made more money in Geico than in uh, than through the fund. Yeah, like more appreciation. He mentions that at the end of the Intelligent Investor, the nineteen seventies edition. The end. He doesn't name Geico, mm-hmm. but the most the thing he says at the end is that one of your authors is like made more money in one stock than in this way that they're recommending to you now. But then in explaining in the yeah yeah and, all and that. I get what he was doing. He's academic. He was trying to teach it you know, on a more of a quantitative I think approach people and stuff like that. And both the interview that they have about Graham where he recommends indexing. And also I think they misunderstand the textbook things. Like for instance, there's a Graham growth formula thing. Graham never invested on that basis. It was just that he put it in a textbook because people wanted to know that information. He has stuff in the intelligent investor. That's like how to, you predicting years future, like the next five years of earnings and what you should capitalize it at and all that kind of stuff. So I don't 
that's different than how he invested. And I guess you could argue about that. Like, so what should we care about how he invested or he wrote in some books? Um, the indexing thing I think was his point of saying that I don't think there's any need for it. So in the intelligent investor, he gives the defensive investor and the enterprise investor. And I think he was saying he would not have written something for a defensive investor anymore. He would just tell them you can index, Mm -hmm. but he never suggested the defensive investor. They buy net nets and things. He actually suggested things like buy the cheapest stocks that you think are reasonably good in the Dow, you know, things like that. Um, I don't know. I kind of agree more with his defensive investor thing than indexing because the dangers of it, but it's hard to know. I mean, I guess by that point he would have already known what happened to the nifty 50 and stuff when he made that statement, but it happened again in the nineties and everything. So it's proven to be a little more dangerous to not stick to the Ben Graham approach. If you had just like eliminated the very top, most expensive things, you would have helped yourself a lot in big stocks and things. If you did the Ben Graham approach. So, I mean, Ben Graham's thing is more like I've said before, the Graham number, yeah. So like you take the P and the price to book, multiply them together and you get a number. And he felt that number needs to be less than 22 and a half. Um, meaning that he thought P's should be, you shouldn't buy stocks with P's over 15 or price to book over 1.5. But if you got a lower PE, you could have a higher price to book or vice versa. And I think that's the very, like that's truly the Ben Graham type approach that you see. So if you have some, one way to think about it is if your stock is both a very, a high PE and a high price to book, wouldn't be a gram stock, but one or the other, it might be. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that's. But the one you said, what you said is true. He did do an interview where he said that. I thought I interpreted that to mean he thought there wasn't really much point to the defensive investor thing. That is to picking out things for non-professionals. Um, I don't think he was saying that hedge funds could never make money. Sure, that he thought yeah. the market was that. Well, he was just teaching it to like the average person right in these books right and, like and so wh- i think that there's some misinterpretation of that when he says like he's no longer in favor of you know um complex um analysis of things uh detailed analysis of individual securities and things like that that's more of saying i think to the general public not that there could be no situations like that um and even i don't know if it's in that exact interview or a different one even then he mentions you could buy a basket of closed end funds um, which clearly is not a like efficient market thing that he's saying, but he's saying like he's a believer in value investing, but it doesn't mean picking out specific stocks. Not so much, but he never. It, that's not really what he stuffed his fund with either. It was a huge number of like net nets and things like that. Um, although also control situations he was involved in and hedging. He has a book, uh, the Memoirs of Ben Graham, correct? Benjamin Graham. Yes, I've read those. Yeah, they're kind of they can be expensive to find sometimes. Really? Do you have it? I kind of want to uh, read it. Wasn't it more okay. about his personal life? Yes. Because I'm very, I'm, I think I'm more interested in his personal life than his domestic okay. life. All right. Yeah. He kind of, yeah. it seems like he kind of, from what I know about him, for lack of, you know, better yeah. word, he kind of lived like a rock star maybe a little bit. Um, very complicated life in a way. Maybe not complicated is the right word, but just certain interesting things about him, I guess. I mean, sex with lots of women, if that's what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Well, the weirdest part was... I'm not here to judge, but I mean, okay. this, I thought, I mean, didn't he like start, didn't he have a relationship with his yes. child's that passed away after he was dead wife uh, or were they not married girlfriend, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Yes. His, he had a mistress who was the former girlfriend uh, of his um, son who, who, who died. Yeah. Um, I don't know the details of that. They might have like bonded together and stuff over the sun, actually, in some ways and stuff. I don't don't remember. Um, 
I don't think that's ever been discussed, actually. I don't know of any one that actually specifically discusses how that happened. Yeah. That kind of, when you said that, remind me of, have you seen the movie Wolf of Wall Street? Uh Uh-huh. When they're talking about Donnie, I think he's like married to his cousin or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he's like, no, no, it's not like that. Her, her father is the brother of my mother or whatever. He's like, oh, okay. No. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I got to read that book then. I've never come across it. I've never seen it like, I don't even see it on Twitter ever. I never see people really reference it. I've heard you talk about it privately to me, but yeah. that's basically about it. Yeah. And, um, it's, yeah, it's interesting. And I don't know. I, then, um, yeah. So th- that part of his life isn't talked about as much. He, he, he was not very, he was much more like Charlie Munger than Warren Buffett. Much more. Like How so? Him. I don't get the impression that Ben Graham spent a huge amount of time thinking about investing. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, he did at times working and stuff, but that was a pretty brief time. He he definitely wasn't that interested in making a lot of money. That's um, correct. For yeah. most of his career. Um, he I mean, was, he was still very wealthy, obviously. Yeah. But I mean, I think the snowball mentions this a little bit, but like he translated some stuff. He uh, wrote a play. He, um, he speak like four different languages. He, he spoke a few different languages. Yeah. Um, and he was much more interested in those sorts of things. And he talks about that in the memoirs, but you know, the, the disappointing thing for you, if you read the memoirs is that everything that they take as anecdotes from Graham that you see in the snowball and all those things are all clearly taken like word for word from the memoirs. Oh really? Yeah. Like unless they're quoting someone where the Charlie Munger's talking about Ben Graham or whatever, actually, isn't there some quote that someone has where they're I forget where it is, but there's a quote from someone who's like, you know, maybe it was from Lou Simpson. It might have been from Lou Simpson. It's a quote from one that's like, you know, Charlie's a lot more like Ben than Charlie likes to. Correct. That is true. Yeah. And I think the personalities are very similar. The other thing is Ben Graham liked Ben Franklin. Ah, I see. Yeah. And I think the personalities of Ben Franklin, Charlie Munger and Ben Graham are actually very similar. From what I've read of the biographies of each of them. How so? Just interests outside of investing? Interests outside of investing and all those sorts of things, yeah. A lot of interest in ver- in all sorts of random different things. Um, a very like, um, uh, mm, it was like the idea of like gentleman scientists from years ago and stuff. Very like willing to learn about any topic and get like a really full understanding of it, even though you weren't an academic foot focusing on that particular area. I mean, the thing that you know about Graham, because it's mentioned in all the books, is that he was offered um, teaching jobs in, um, what ones would they have been? Probably classics, philosophy, and math, maybe. Um, and chose not to do that and say go to Wall Street and stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's, correct. that's a pretty good example. That's not usually what most people are offered and stuff. So yeah, yeah. he had an interest in all of those things. I wonder if the Lou Simpson comment comes from that fact sort of this idea of Their having of different right like uh-huh. people because of what stocks they focus sure, on yeah but that's it like yeah. they don't realize how i think does he, does munger not like greg he kind of always <laughs> i don't want to say he speaks negative of him but he's definitely not you know what i'm saying yes yes yeah well i think he he thought it wasn't a very what is it like not a very big insight what graham had you know i guess i think he thinks from munger's position to Buffett, Graham was sort of this like godlike figure, mm-hmm. and Munger didn't see him as that. Now, the times were a little right. bit different, right? Buffett read his book, he was his student, he mm-hmm. worked with him, they've been friends, stuff like that, you know? So maybe that was the difference there. 
where Buffett was, you know, he liked him both personally and probably professionally. And by the way, like Munger says, Buffett made a lot of money investing the Benjamin Graham way. Oh, yeah. And I think Graham was that kind of person. I mean, there's no one close. I can't think of anyone in the history of investing who's remotely as important as Ben Graham. Because... In the investing universe? Yeah. If you look, if you really dig into the background of lots of other people that went in completely different directions, their actual exposure to it was Ben Graham. Like, you don't know some of the people who took his class and were influenced by what he said. And there's little things in Graham's stuff that went on to be very important in terms of actual practitioners using them. There's even stuff about hedging and merger arbitrage stuff and things like that that I get the impression was tied to Ben Graham's stuff. If you read the memoir thing, he casually kinds of i mean he tells a little story about it but basically he decided to buy something based on option value of the stuff um of a stock that was in bankruptcy and there had been no work done at that time on what should an option be this was was in 1917 he was doing no no it was earlier than that did he when did he die 70s yeah so anyway it was around world war one era when he makes this recommendation i'm sure there were some papers written in math things and stuff that thought about what the value of things like that might be and hadn't been applied yet to options. But the, those are things that like people don't even think about today. They just um, assume. So his point was, okay, it's a stock. It's probably going to be worthless. But even if it's probably worthless, it's something. so this is a thing that comes up with options and warrants all the time. Um, it's almost certainly worthless. But it, if it is worth something, it's worth a lot. So we should actually buy it because it might be worth that much as a lottery ticket. So how do I value that? Asymmetric upside. Yeah. How, but how do I value all those sorts of things that way? Um, that was it. All the things that he did in hedging different things out and stuff. The, the whole attitude of wall street before Graham was there was very speculative and stuff that you see today. Uh, it was a lot focused on who do we think are the different like pools and syndicates and things that are going to move different stocks. Um, who are the personalities involved? What do they like? Um, none of this like intrinsic value concept. And so some people do mention occasionally there's stuffing that Keynes, John Maynard Keynes wrote about that Buffett quotes that I believe Keynes didn't have any real, I don't think he read Graham. He knew who Ben Graham was. There's some proof of that and stuff, but I, there's no evidence that he ever read any Ben Graham and he does use words like intrinsic value and, um, long-term earning power and things like that. That sounds sort of like a, if you want to call it Ben Graham slash Charlie Munger type thinking, um, that seems independent, right, of Graham. But of course, no one read Keynes. And they read Keynes' writings on economic things, but there's very little in Keynes that discusses investing things. So they were all people who were influenced by Graham. And they went on to like run different firms and things. Those people took his classes. So, I mean, almost all of it that spread to other people was all from that stuff. Now, later it became more quantified and then papers were written and then with computers and things that some people I think are more detached from Graham's original ideas and just think, Oh, values this factor that works or something. doesn't really matter what, why it works and stuff. But yeah, his influence I think was huge. And I don't think there was anyone else doing anything like what he was doing at that time. Um, so his actual investing record it was fine. He was most concerned with making money every year for investors with virtually no risk. They would so. ship money back every year too. Yes. So he actually he ran was, it like, yeah. you know, 
Yep, he worked with very, very little sums of money. He could have worked with a lot bigger, but chose to pay out all the time. I can't even think of hedge funds that do that nowadays. I mean, some do. I mean, mm-hmm. the only one I could think of really actually is Tepper. Before he went to family mm-hmm. office, he was the only hedge fund I've ever heard of where he would, I think their uh, AUM was like $10 billion and anything over that at the end of the year, they would just send it back. Yep, well, Graham sent it back at very low numbers, so he didn't make a ton of money from that. Uh, he made some, but I mean, it was he kept the fund very, very small. So he was able to buy almost everything. Do you know and what that was in today's dollars? Yeah, I did the calculation once. It's very small. It would be considered a tiny fund. And he always mentioned that to people and stuff. Um, so, uh, no, yeah, no, on the basis of the fund size today, you wouldn't, it would never register to anyone that it was a meaningful fund. Was it like 20 or 30 million? I'd have to check, but like, I'm sure that in today's money, Meekum was running a lot more money than Graham ever did. No well. doubt about that. For everyone listening, I think Meekum's peak was like 1.2 billion, 1.3 billion. Yeah. Why do you think this approach wasn't appealing to Munger? And that's a fascinating thing. So picture your Munger yeah. shoes, right? Uh-huh. You're coming into this field with a bunch of experts, people that have made a lot of money from investing. Mm-hmm. You have no experience in real life investing other than real estate. And then yeah. just having the insight, I guess, to be like, what? That I, I don't like that. I just I wonder where that came from, you know? I think Graham's And it approach, really yeah. shows how independent minded he right. is, you know. Yes. I think Graham's approach was too easy for him. I don't know. It's interesting how much like Buffin and Munger changed away from Graham's ideas, why they did it, how big has the payoff really been, and all that kind of stuff. So some things are that over time it became harder to find Graham type things that pay off well. This is the thing that I think is the hardest for people to understand who haven't looked back at history and stuff. The quality of the net nets that you see and the quality mm-hmm. of the Ben Graham stocks that you see today are not like yeah. what Graham was actually buying. That's different. He was buying much more basic sorts. So like of the stocks that we own and stuff that are Ben Graham-like, what it is is something like Virtue Motors. That's what he would buy. It, it really is. He would buy things that occasionally lost a little money, made a little money, whatever. But low PE, low price to book, but basically a normal looking business. Maybe it could be liquidated for as much or more as it was um, trading at. Probably some private owner would pay a lot for it. Um, a lot of banks we talk about would fall in that category of things that that he might buy. But it was not like frauds and a lot of things about to go out of business and stuff. I mean, in some cases that may have happened with them, but it was much more all sorts of different companies that were just disliked for long periods of time. And because we haven't been through the kind of period that he had from the thirties through the fifties, really stocks were just not well liked during that period. Unless I mentioned things in Japan, people can't understand what Ben Graham stocks were really like. And you can find, I think you could find it online. I won't say where, cause you're not really supposed to be able to find it, but um, you can find lists of what positions he actually had. So you can find that. And then you can go and look at other things. If you have other sources to see, he actually, you can actually find lists of every position in the portfolio. So it was very, the median position size was like 1%, hmm. but his biggest positions would be in the five to 10% range. And they did some control situations. Um, I think if you remember, yeah, I know that this is true. Um, do you remember Buffett's um, with uh, Jay Pritzker, Buffett's stuff with um, the cocoa? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think it's, it's mentioned in, in some books. It may be in the snowball and yeah. stuff, but I know it's true that that was originally pitched to Graham Newman to buy the whole company. 
Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, And then Pritzker got involved. It wasn't. Yeah. So it was actually not just an arbitrage thing. Graham Newman eventually decided to do the arbitrage in it. But they originally considered doing a control position in something that would liquidate and stuff. So they were brought an idea that was like below liquidation and they consider it. So they, they weren't just like buying net nets and things. They did buy other things where they took control. Um, they bought half of Geico and then they had to, um, or I don't know if you'd say they had to, but they um, spun it out basically. Um, but again, that was a really good price for them. So that's why they did it. Um, so they did control things and stuff like that. But like I said, the average, the, the median position size was like 1%. So over half the portfolio was in positions less than 1%, I would say. Interesting. They're very small. Um, probably in part to be able to um, trade them. Like that's also probably why they kept small. I think he wanted to be able to buy anything he wanted. You know, he wouldn't get to too big a size. Mm -hmm. So you could buy smaller things. That's another issue. I think the things he could buy, and I found this to be true, very, very small net nets and things are a lot more attractive than the very big ones usually. In crises, the big ones can be attractive, but deep value is something I don't know if it works that well among the biggest stocks. That's something to be careful of. The low price to book stock that's huge usually has something wrong with it. Like a fallen angel in a way. Yeah, like if you imagine Sears or something, but you imagine something that's one one thousandth the size, usually that's better than the one that everyone's focusing on that's like the Sears mm -hmm. or something. Yeah. Do you think it ever bothered Buffett that Munger's interest went elsewhere over time? Mm, no, I don't think so. Do you? you I don't know. Probably, I mean, I don't know. I mean, what, what do you say? I mean, Munger owns, you know, percent. I mean, he's vice chairman of the company, so it's not like he's the one that's totally involved, but or in charge. Yeah, yeah. Buffett was always. Yeah, I don't think that they would bother. I wonder. Him. I just wonder why. That's the fascinating thing about yeah. Buffett. Okay, is because you look at. We've talked about this. There's not a lot of hedge fund managers that you know, do it for 50, 60, uh, for so long, as mm -hmm. long as Buffett has done it. Peter Lynch got out of the business in what, 10 years. Um, yes. Buffett shut down his partnership after like what, 10 years. Mm -hmm. So that's like the most impressive thing to me about Buffett is that he's just been doing it for so long. Yeah, and you I mean, see that in the nature of, of, yeah, you see that in, in the compounding of his wealth, by the way, Yes. about how like what, 90, five plus percent of his wealth or whatever it is came after his 50th birthday yeah that's true i mean even when we were talking about ben graham even ben graham like he buffett graham yeah there you go 20 or more years past where ben graham wanted to be out of the business um which you know wasn't that early that wasn't that late i mean um he's but he had a long career ben graham probably had like a 35 years on wall street mm -hmm. or something totally. i want to learn more about rick guerin i okay. mean he just passed away yeah and the only thing we know about him is it's a little, kind of negative in a way, I guess. I'd be like, gosh, if, if this is the story that people talk about me about whenever I, my name gets brought up, the fact that I... He, he's marred in permanent the, value a little bit in places. The, I'm yeah. saying like the part that I had to pay Buffett for my stock at $40 per share, like I'd be yeah. like, that sucks. Yeah. Um, there's some stuff in a permanent value, right? We know there's some things like about... Um, what was the one that they have? What do they call it? A Pacific whatever um do you know the one i'm talking about it's a separate entity um that was munger invested into is this the stock exchange no 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 okay. it was like um oh what was it called it wasn't called pacific air or something i can't remember what it was called now but um i think that he may have been invested in some side thing um separately uh that i'm trying to remember what it was it eventually became a like 
uh, thing for buying other businesses because whatever the original idea was didn't work out. It kind of like a Berkshire Hathaway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like a holding but I, company? Yeah, but unfortunately I can't remember what it was. I think it was some West Coast Air related thing. Interesting. So we got an email from a gentleman named James. Okay. And he says, I'm a holder in both Cambria and Omnicom. Okay. I know you two are fans and investors of Vertu and mm-hmm. that Jeff has written about Omnicom a great deal. Yeah. IR, I'm sorry, IIRC. I don't okay. know what that means. Part of the rationale for Omnicom was that it was the pick of the big four in terms of capital allocation, right. lower debt, more buybacks, et cetera. However, would you agree that given its history of share issuance, Cambria has probably had a better track record on the capital allocation side of these two UK dealership groups? So the question is, what is it about the Virtu business outside of capital allocation that makes it better? I don't mean this to come across as competitive. Just been curious about it for a while, and I want to hear you answer more questions. Uh, so, that's, so both of those are actually very common questions of Omnicom Cambria and Virtu Cambria. Is like one of yeah. those common questions I get. A lot of people I know are invested in Cambria and wanted me to write it up and stuff. And I looked at it for the website and decided not to write it up because it'd be a very boring write up, which is I like uh, Virtu better. Not that I dislike Cambria, but... Um, I, I just felt more comfortable with the assets that Virtu owned and what it was going to um, do in the future, maybe. And I didn't like, um, I didn't feel as secure with Cambria. Uh, and it's hard to explain that to people. But so higher end brands, it has some of which I don't understand as well. So some super premium type brands and things more so than Virtu does. It was building out some new things related to that at the time I was looking at it. Um, so new investment would be an asset growth related to those kinds of premium things. It's a little more concentrated geographically in a certain part of England, um, much more so around London and stuff and, um, things like that. I felt there was a shift in what they were doing where they were going to be less mass market stuff and more, uh, high end stuff, real premium cars, which I didn't feel I'd understand well and wouldn't know if there was like a temporary boom and those sorts of things and stuff. And then in terms of capital allocation, uh, yeah, I feel that capital allocation of Virtu hadn't been as good. And I felt that from the point I bought it on, Virtu's capital allocation would be better than Cambria's. Um, they were not having real free cash flow at Cambria for a little while because they were going to build out things themselves, which I wasn't sure about. I didn't know one way or the other about. And meanwhile, Virtu, I felt, had had a significant change of attitude from management about things like buybacks and share issuance. And so I felt that um, they were likely to buy back more stock over time and have an opportunity to buy back more stock at low price, tangible book values. And I wanted to be involved more in, in the more mass market car dealers diversified more by who the makers are. They're, they're doing a little bit more of that now at Virtu. They've relied a little bit more on certain ones like Ford and stuff. Um, but if I could pick, pick any car dealer uh, group, I would pick one that was a few of the different um, manufacturers, you know, three or more of the big car makers and focus on the mass market stuff rather than the really high-end cars. I know that most people like the high-end ones better. They have better economics, certainly, once you get them going. But I'd rather buy it like a discount price to book of a more diversified car dealer uh, brand portfolio. Um, so yeah, so I thought Virtu would be cheap and be able to buy back its own stock. As it turned out, 
all the other car companies got cheap and stuff, and now it's more likely there'll be mergers and things in the industry um, because of that, I think, than there was before. But my thought was that over the next two or three years, Virtu would generate very large amounts of free cash flow, and the stock would be cheap, allowing them to buy back a lot of their own stock. And I didn't feel that that would be happening at Cambria. Uh, I didn't think there'd be much free cash flow generation mm-hmm. as much. Um, I didn't feel they'd be buying back their stock, things like that. Yeah. People always bring that up about Virtu, past capital allocation decisions and stuff like that. It was the biggest thing that I thought about. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the number one thing that I thought about was their past capital allocation. Um, same person is running it. And I bet that same person will run it for a while more. Um, and so why wouldn't their capital allocations be different in the future than the past? I think it'll only be somewhat different. I still think they'll be very interested in doing mergers that get them scale and stuff, just like they did before. Um, I think though that there might be some changes in terms of how they think about stuff. Um, and I don't want to talk bad about Cambria, but, um, it had a good owner operator with a lot of skin in the game, started from a very small size um and did the kind of capital allocation stuff that you'd want to get to the point that they were at um i'm maybe i felt that you know the next 15 years or 10 to 15 years or whatever for cambria will be not as easy as the last ones just because of size and stuff that what they accomplished was i think easier given their size um and i'm maybe a little more comfortable with a larger group based more on scale than a group based more on um, the particularly good economics of certain luxury car dealership relationships and things like that, and less on scale across a mass sort of thing. Um, Just things like that. Got it. There's another good question here. Um, From your experience, what do you think generally are the best predictors of future returns of a company going forward? Is it the starting valuation, the consistency of the business, growth, low asset intensity? Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I mean, the number one most important is probably like um, the, whether you want to call it predictability, quality, um, whatever exactly you business. want to call that, like how predictable it is. If you take that and combine it with the starting multiple, then I agree. The problem is like the starting price is not that helpful unless you know the quality mm-hmm. thing. So it doesn't need to know, you don't need to know much about will it grow or something like that. But is it like fundamental, like so in the questions about that, about Cambrian Virtu, how important is it? If one's a lot cheaper than the other, buy the cheaper one. If you think they're both at least decent car uk car dealers if you think the industry is going to be around for 15 years in much the same shape i always use a 15 year example because it's a little it's not so far in the future that people think like they can't imagine it but it's as far as they could think out so you know is it still going to be a pretty good industry um are the returns on capital and stuff going to be pretty similar then my advice honestly is like buy the really cheap ones in it um, unless there's something wrong with, you know, management or strategy or something, but in general, yeah. So, um, like say if we were talking about supermarkets, mm-hmm. would the P multiple be really important? What the starting one is? Yes. Cause the business is going to be around forever. And unless they do something dumb or something, if a supermarket has a P of three, you should buy it. And if it has a P of 30, you shouldn't. Um, and it's that simple because you could get a five times return just on the multiple. But if someone was talking to me about like, um, a tech thing, 
I can't tell because I don't know what the exit multiple is supposed to be. The exit multiple could be anything because it could be seen as a really bad business in a few years or it could be seen as an amazing business. It's not so simple. Um, but when you're in things like food and media and finance and things like that, it's the starting multiple. That's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. So like the Buffett type industries, if you're yeah. in a Buffett industry, it's the starting multiple. Mm-hmm. Definitely the most important thing is the starting multiple. Um, but in other industries, it may be different. Yeah. Got it. So bring it back to France and England, right? Okay. Lockdowns. It's an election this upcoming week. Let's just say maybe there's going to be a lot of volatility. Do you have okay. any advice for listeners on what to do when there is a lot of volatility in the markets? Mm. I would say first default to don't do anything. Okay. It, it can be good if you have pre-planned sort of things you'd be interested in. And you can take advantage of them. But I would say don't think like I have to do something now. So if you had already been planning to sell something and there's a lot of volatility, you're even more scared of whatever that thing is um, or the prices go up and you have a chance to sell it or whatever, then go ahead. But if it wasn't something, if it was something you weren't considering selling before, you shouldn't be thinking like, oh, I could take advantage of the market going up a lot and sell right um same thing with buying like i'd be careful about something that you had never heard of before and now you've decided you want to buy but if there's been things you've always been waiting to buy and now you get a price that you like um so volatility is good for like the time to be acting but it's not so good for the time to be thinking and acting you know if you already like pre-committed to an action uh buying or selling when you hit a certain price or whatever that's great but if it's like i should look for something to do now then i would be cautious about that you know um And I think most people default to, I should do like, they think if there's more volatility, they should be more likely to do something now, Mm -hmm. sell and buy both, uh, then shuffle the deck a little bit. Yeah. Like I should be reacting to this. I'm how do I, how do I take advantage of this or, uh, you know, or like, what do I do about this? Um, both of those things. And I'd say like, I think that's fine as long as you kind of did the analysis before, Mm -hmm. I think you can keep your head enough to like do the buying or selling that you kind of had thought about before. But I think if you start a totally new analysis of a company now, then that would worry me. So like, um, let's say there's lots of volatility and you'd read that I wrote something about Amark precious metals and said that it responds to volatility in gold or something. And you're like, Oh, well maybe I should buy that now because there's volatility and I'm worried about things and, but you've never had any experience investing in gold before or anything. You just do it because you think, Oh, that kind of makes like a, uh, a, a mark is, um, Oh yeah. Uh, a M a R K. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually written that way. Yeah. So obviously, um, when I was talking about it and, and I was like, you know, Oh, well it might, Part of it's worth, what did I say, $8, yeah. and the stock is maybe at 10 and the other parts could be worth more than that, but you know, the part I liked was worth almost as much as the stock, and I said the rest of it's all speculative and stuff. Now it's a $30 stock. Yeah. But the reason for that is because of its response to um, volatility in gold and stuff, right? Um, so it's a speculation on that. So that's the kind of thing. If you like the stock and whatever, or like you say you own the stock now, and then things get really volatile with gold and stuff and, and it goes up even more or, or um, then I think it's okay to sell it. If you have been thinking beforehand, oh, you know, this is kind of expensive and I've been thinking about uh, maybe I can take advantage of this or whatever. Right. I think it's okay. 
you know, unusual volatility. And same thing with like buying something, unusual volatility might be a good time to buy. Um, for all things, if you need volume, but most listeners don't, but we sometimes do. But if you need volume in a stock, volatility is always good because it's more likely to create volume at mm-hmm. prices that you might buy it. So it's often a good time to quickly get a position of stuff that might otherwise take forever. Mm-hmm. Um, that does happen, definitely. Uh, but yeah, I wouldn't like start with a top down thing and stuff. That's the one I would worry about is like making formulating a new idea in the middle of this of a lot of volatility i don't like as an idea yeah and then is there anything you would look over like with uh, the actual fundamentals of the business with the shutdowns that are starting to happen Mm, i mean it's the same as before the issues here are how much value is destroyed while they're shut down in terms of burning cash and things like that in terms of like long-term earning power business, it really doesn't matter. What they're reporting earnings, it doesn't matter. It's just, can this stock stay? It's liquidity and stuff like that. So when I talked about Virtu, it was like, how quickly can they sell cars? Um, when you t- With some companies, like, will they be allowed to not pay rent? Um, things like that. So, you know, it's your usual restaurants um, and uh, like, well, things like we talked about, like Dave and Buster's, but cruise lines, all those sorts of things, like those things that actually burn cash for a while. Restaurants, I guess, would be one of the biggest ones mm-hmm. for people now. Um, movie theaters. Yep, movie theaters. So how much cash do they burn? We talked about that a little bit with Cinemark. Like how many months does that give you? And then what's your access to capital is the other one. So these big companies sometimes do have access to capital. We've seen that before. So like, let's say restaurants though, right? Does ARC restaurants have as much access to capital as Cheesecake Factory? So if it doesn't, that could be a problem, even if it's in as strong a financial position and stuff like that. You know, Dave and Buster's might have access to capital, but does anyone else in the industry who isn't as big as them? You know, they might not Mm. be able to. We talk about movie theaters. All the smaller movie theaters don't. But something like Cinemark, maybe they can do an offering of bonds or whatever, you know, that's Mm. attractive to people or equity or warrants or, you know. So survival. But it was like Buffett buying American Express. It doesn't real. I mean, we could get into all the things about the virus and what we'd expect and whatever. But I've always thought from the beginning of when we did this, you should imagine starting as of 2022 earnings. In other words, 2020 and 2021 should not be considered as normal for your business. And you really need to analyze what are earnings likely to be in 2022 and beyond. Mm -hmm. And I still think that's true. And that's true no matter how fast they get to have vaccines and things at this point, pretty much. There's almost no speed at which you could do it and get it out to people and everything that would actually, it's not like flipping a switch that it would change everything back. So next year will be a year that people consider to be a COVID year. There'll be two years where they mm-hmm. consider them to be totally abnormal. Um, so I wouldn't worry about it that way. Like I wouldn't worry about trying to predict earnings next year. I think that's not smart predict survival till 2022 sure, yeah. and then what are earnings on average in 2022 2023 2024 that's where i would say looking about you know movie theaters restaurants any of those like if you can buy it for eight dollars a share and you think it will average two dollars of earnings in you know 2022 23 and 24 then you really just have to ask, will it survive? Mm-hmm. Right? Because four times earnings is pretty good. Yeah, sure. Um, so four times earnings is fine to pay. So the question is just, does it survive to that point? Then does it dilute a lot? You don't have to worry about what actually earns these years. Got it. Cool. Did you hear Stevie Cohen purchase the Mets? Were you a Mets fan growing up? Uh, no, no. My <laughs> my family are uh, Yankees. Yankee so, fans. Yeah. I think no. he, they expect uh, the Mets to lose $400 million over the next couple of years. Really? Yeah. Uh-huh. 
it was behind a premium article, so I didn't get to read it all. I don't know how that's uh, possible. Yeah, I was I was gonna guess the Mets payroll would only be like maybe I'm underestimating what their payroll would be. I was gonna guess it's hard to believe that they could be more than two hundred million in Let's a year. See if we could find an article. I don't know what he paid. A couple billion, two billion, two something. He tried buying them a couple years yeah, ago. Yeah, sports teams' uh, valuations have been very strong, which is interesting because sports ratings have been very poor. Yeah, <laughs> very poor. Yeah, it's going to be one of the first times I think that where for the major sports leagues they'll all <clears throat> have kind of weak ratings numbers for a few years, um, but they may get higher. You know, when they renegotiate these things, we talked about that with. Um, nascar you know because mm. nascar is important thing the right for, for dover um motorsports and um how, how nascar is an extreme example because it has huge declines in its ratings you mm-hmm. know over the in the 2000s but um a lot of times it's negotiated payment that are the tv rights that are even better um because it more than offsets the ratings declines and that seems like that might happen for some of these um leagues it certainly is the case that the valuations and the teams keep going up that is correct so you know record valuations on the teams it's just interesting maybe you'll buy the yankees one day yeah i mean look the the mets yeah one would assume the yankees would go for a lot more than the mets Uh the mets don't have any following outside of new york nope no um yeah, and I, I guess he's probably partners with David Einhorn then, unless he bought it all out. I thought Einhorn owned part of the Mets. I know, I'm pretty sure he tried buying the whole team. Yeah. And then I think Ackman called to sort of help out with that. Oh, no, he yeah. loves baseball. He's he's always been a baseball fan. And they viewed Einhorn as sort of a... Because it's like a club to get in. You have to get approval right. by all the other owners. Mm-hmm. And I think they viewed it as just some rich hedge fund manager that wants to buy a team. Like, I don't think he... When you got approved through the process. Oh. And somehow Ackman's call supposedly did oh, not really? help out. And Ackman okay. thought he was helping out and it did not help out. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with both of us here today on the Premium Podcast. We appreciate the support. Download the app if you have not already. It is a better way to listen as opposed to the website version. Thank you so much, everybody, for the support. Email us questions, focuscompounding at gmail.com. We will answer them just like we did the couple questions in this podcast, and we will see you in the next podcast.